you know, that's always the director's you know, greatest task, right? Hold the tone. If you hold the tone and the performances are solid, the audience will have a, a path. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Tom McCarthy's new drama, Stillwater. Mr. McCarthy's film tells the story of Bill, an unemployed oil rig roughneck who flies to Marseille to visit his estranged daughter, Allison, who is imprisoned for a murder she claims she did not commit. Eager to regain her trust, Bill embarks on a mission to exonerate Allison, despite language barriers, cultural differences, and a complicated legal system. In addition to Stillwater, Mr. McCarthy's other directorial credits include the feature films The Station Agent, The Cobbler, and Timmy Failure Mistakes Were Made, and episodes of 13 Reasons Why. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Theatrical Feature Film for his 2015 film, Spotlight. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. McCarthy spoke with fellow director Scott Cooper about filming Stillwater. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good evening. Thank you. Hey guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out tonight. I said to Tom, I said, wow, I, I, I'll be surprised if anyone's here. And what a great turnout. Thank you guys for coming out. It's such a beautiful and, and powerful and, and, and very human film. Tom and I had dinner just before this, and I said... Tom, you've packed so much into, into this film. I mean, it, it starts off as this investigative thriller, which, of course, Tom does quite well with the beautiful film Spotlight. And it then seg... Yes. And then it segues into this kind of tender and, and, and unexpected romance, and then to this kind of meditation on memory and, and kind of questions... America's moral authority. So what was the genesis of this film? <laughs> uh, great question. Because the trailers led me to believe yeah. that this was going to be something, and I'll get to it, like a Taken. Yeah. And it's decidedly not that. It's definitely not that. Um, and I love those movies. Uh, uh, but yeah, I don't cut the trailers. Uh, unfortunately who cuts trailers but um yeah this movie it's been a long haul with this one i started this one 10 years ago thinking about it worked with a, a, another writer on it sort of wrote a thriller uh kind of based on the same story uh, or at least the setup of the story about this man going to visit his daughter in prison and then uh i just wasn't satisfied with it i felt too i didn't have a point of view on it i i uh i felt like it wasn't dimensional enough i couldn't feel the humanity in the movie mm -hmm. And uh, so I put it down, and I've never really done that with a script before. I normally just write them, figure them out, and then make them. And um, this one I just couldn't figure out, so I put it down for about six years. And I picked it up again in 2016, and the whole world had started to change. Uh, and, uh, you know, I reached out to two new writers. Uh, these are guys who collaborate with Jacques Odiard, who's a director I greatly admire from France. And uh, I just sent him the draft. I said, I'm not, I don't like the script, but I like the setup. I like the idea. And I like at the heart of it, this father-daughter dysfunctional relationship and these extreme circumstances. And Thomas Bidigan and Noé Debre and I started working together. And, uh, you know, we suddenly, I felt like I had something, a point of view on it, which was like, who is this guy from the middle of the country? What don't I understand about him? And what can I start to understand about him in this discussion? 
And also, as you point out at the time, like, you know, America was suddenly, everyone in the world was suddenly questioning our, what we perceived to be our moral authority. And I thought that played pretty well into this sort of mythic hero idea of the American abroad, guy on a mission, getting it done, moral imperative, this is the right thing to do at all costs. And it just felt like the right time to have that conversation with an audience through this character. The, the screenwriters that you mentioned wrote uh, Rust and Bone, uh, Un Prophet, yeah. and uh, Deep End, movies that I also really Yeah, really admired. great movies, did, all so, of them. So how did, for someone who writes his films, as you do, generally by yourself, how did that come about that you, did you just call them up? Did you call their agent? I literally just did called them. Did you pitch the film to them? No, we, we, I got their email and I sent them a script and a really lame email and just said, would you guys read this and can we talk? And we did a very awkward Zoom uh, where they were very French with me and uh, they were like squeezed into the frame together and they just sort of like, you know, they didn't like the script. And, uh, and Did they, they were, tell you that? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> and they were like, we like the idea, but we don't like it. But they were, they were direct. And, and, and but more than that, they were incredibly specifically articulate about what wasn't working and what they thought it could be. And the way they diagnosed it just really spoke to me. I was like, okay, that's the movie I want to make. I don't know what it is yet. So I flew to Paris a couple of weeks later and we just sort of holed up in, our, in their place where they work for about two weeks and just kind of like talked about the movie and everything uh, and what it could be. And that was, then we spent another year kind of laying out the, uh, the draft. Well, having no idea what you wrote and what they didn't, knowing your films as well as I do, which are always really character-based and, and deeply humanistic and with really great uh, minimal dialogue, and then also knowing the films that they've, that they've written – I mean, you can really see how these films um, benefit from both of your points of view. How did you divide the labor? Great question. You know, it's really interesting because we had similar aesthetics, right? Cinematically, I really appreciated their movies. I think they appreciated mine. At least they said so. And, um, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm as influenced by European films as I am American cinema, without question. And... And I'm also a big fan of French cinema. So it was great because, you know, as writers, I would they would make these choices, which I would be like, what are they doing? You can't do that. And then be like, like give oh, me an example. That's really interesting. Oh, man, there were so many. Some of them are really small, just really like subtle choices of character of like, mm, OK, uh, Renault, the theater director, spends the night. And I'm all into this scene and they're, they're taking that section and they're writing it. And then Bill puts Maya to bed and has that moment where she calls him my favorite American and walks out and, and, and the theater director and, and Virginie are making out. And I was like, I remember reading it and being like, oh, okay, I didn't see that coming. Wow. Uh, and, I, and they just, it was just a nice choice that um, was unexpected and I think spoke to her character most oh, specifically, sure. you know, and. They did, and then there are bigger examples where they, they had the idea of like that three-month jump, which I ultimately loved what it did for the picture and the momentum and where it, how it allowed me to disengage from the genre in a way and sort of slip into this other drama that was happening between these two people, the, the Virginie and her daughter Maya and Bill. Um, so they were just, you know, and look, there's times where they went too far. You know, I, I, gonna, I, moments where they would send you the script and you would say, this really doesn't work for me. Uh, yeah, it would be subtler than that. I would, I would just push and they would push back. And look, sometimes Toma and I would be super aligned and no way would be our kind of grounding wire. You know, he'd be the guy I'd be like, no, that's too much. And uh, we'd be really excited about an idea and he would kill it. So, yeah, it was just a really easy, you know, collaboration with those guys. And it, it played all the way through. I think, you know, it's funny, the French... 
and we really leaned into their style of filmmaking a lot, it is, they do have a different way of operating. No There's question. something about it which just feels incredibly communal. They don't, you know, it's not like a set where you can't touch that, it's union, you can't do this, it's that. They're like, fuck that. It's all, it's all hands on deck a lot of times. They're smaller, more nimble film sets. They're real pros, they take their job seriously, but they do tend to kind of overlap a lot in their duties, and you feel that in the filmmaking, and in some way I think it makes it just a little bit more uh, craft-based and a little bit more intimate in a way that we embraced for this picture. Not necessarily better or worse, just more intimate. Well, the intimacy really comes through in, in the picture. Why Marseille as opposed, which I really appreciated, just if nothing more than... You don't see it often, and my love for French Connection. Yep. But why Marseille and not Paris? Just felt like a better canvas, right? It's just a sloppier, messier, really working-class town. It's a port city, which I think is sort of interesting for the dynamic of Bill arriving to this port city. It's a city that has layers of immigrants that really deals with class and race in a way much different than than Paris does. And I just thought, you know, visually, I went and started visiting that, that, that city early 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and I just fell in love with what it represented. And, um, you know, finally, I was reading a lot of Mediterranean noir then uh, set in Barcelona and Italy. And, and, and there's a series, this Izzo novel, series of novels set in Marseille. And it just really captured the spirit of, I think, one, one element of this story that I thought was exciting and right. Speak to the uh, this weekend, or maybe it was leading up to it, uh, the young American who, Amanda Knox, who was sent to, or who was in Italy and, and had, um, I don't know the story that, that well, but, but apparently was, was um, had an issue with, or was in prison for... Uh, yeah, she was a story about 10, 11 years ago. That was a story that got, was really written about in the press, and it was grabbing all the headlines, and she was in prison for not her girlfriend, but a, a roommate that was killed. And that definitely is something that sparked with me. It was definitely an early reference point with this. But look, I deeply empathize with her circumstance and her feelings about all of this. It's very, very valid, right? Obviously, very incredibly traumatic event. And uh, But this is just purely a work of fiction. That's just where it stops. Yes. And I think I was sort of drawing on that. I was drawing on a, a, a relative of mine and her relationship with her father, specifically, who was a recovering addict and just like really digging deep. I did a series of interviews with her to try to unpack that. And then finally, I read this terrific book that dealt with uh, this very empathetic kind of distillation of Tea Party families living in rural Louisiana. And, and how they were trying. And, and it really went to kind of a really deep dive into the psychosis of, of what they're thinking and believing. And that was maybe, from my mind, one of the most important elements thematically. So there was a lot of other things, but you know, you know, guys know as a filmmaker, you're kind of grabbing bits and pieces. So, you know, I, I feel for her and I understand that she feels like this is her story, but it's, it's obviously not anything to do with it. And, and then, and then finally, you know, I've made a story about real people and real and with spotlight. And when I do that, I reach out, I connect, I engage them because it's about authenticity. So, um, you know, I, this this is its own story. And although I respect everybody's feelings on the issue sure. as a filmmaker, you're you're open to it. You know. Yeah. No, I understand that. Um, did you think was it helpful for you to be outside of the U.S. to kind of comment on on the way in which you did? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 2016, we were all in such a 
storm here, right? It was hard to get, you know, thing. And the, the French writers were just great. We would get on the call every day and they just went like, what is going on there? What is happening? How do we talk about it? And I think they were helping me process what was happening here. Right. And, and as first as a writer and then as a storyteller and how we would think about it. And at that same time, 2016, I really started going to Oklahoma for the first time again and again and again, driving around, meeting roughnecks, setting up interviews with them, taping them. I would bring Masa, our shared cinematographer, the great Masanobu Takinagi, and he, Masa would film these interviews, take photos of these guys. And, and I knew I hadn't hired Matt yet, but these were ultimately tapes I was going to download Matt with all this information and then bring Matt back. So I was spending a lot of time there and doing a deep dive into that really specific culture, not just of Oklahoma, but of roughnecks. And that was incredibly enlightening on a lot of levels as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, and as an American trying to, trying to understand what was happening to our country at that point. It was incredibly, incredibly fundamental to the work. And then I think finally the other big thing, Scott, that was like critical to this in the, on, the, on the sort of filmmaking storytelling side was that like Toma and Noe and I were all listening to podcasts at that moment. And we were the long form, S-Town, Serial. And we're all like, man, this way of like these stories starting at one thing and becoming something very different. And, you know, starting off as a mystery, murder mystery, and it's a love story, and it's this and it's that. And we're like, that's kind of what we're trying to do with our film without having a cinematic structure for it. So we said, let's implement that template for our film. Let's see what, if we can reach for that cinematically. Well, but that's what's so great about it, and it's so unexpected. And, and, and really, for me, I, after I watched it, I, I thought, you know, this is really a film about consequences. It's about the consequences yeah. of our actions and this kind of nuanced look at doing everything you can to protect your family. Yeah. And, and who won't be able to relate to that? And, and you live with the consequences, whether Abigail Breslin, who's, who's wonderful in the film for the rest of her life, that she has to live with them, and certainly Matt as Bill Baker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, a straight-up thriller, you know, taken, for instance, they get off the plane, they're back in the U.S., it's kind of over. There's usually a nice scene by the car right outside the airport or maybe in the driveway, but that's it. There's no examination of, like, what happened back there? What did I do? What did I leave, you know? This movie needs to examine that. This needs that there are emotional human toll, not just for the people around us that we love, but for our own psyche, for our own, like, what do we go moving forward? How do we, even if we do a, a slightly changed world perspective, how do we implement that based on who we are? And that to me is, was really the reason to make, for me, the reason to make the movie then in some weird way, after the pandemic, I think those last couple of scenes resonate in a more global way as we're all looking at a changed world and, and, and what's our path and how do we move forward into it? Well, um, like I, you were, uh, and you probably still are, I'm not, but you maybe still are a, an actor. And it's clear in your all of your films that you really elicit very grounded and nuanced and, and deeply uh, humanistic performances. Talk about your relationship with actors and how you direct them. Do you direct them? Because there are other actors that I know who are directors that don't really give much direction. Yeah. Um, how, do, how do you, being an actor, how does it help you communicate? I mean, I think just because I love that work. I love that communication. I love finding individual language for each actor, which in this case, you know, you've got Matt. Abby, Kemi, and Lilu, just the four of them, they just, you know, Lilu, who plays Maya, had never been on a movie set, never acted a day in her life, and 
didn't even speak English, you know, only French. So it was like finding my language and rhythm with her. Matt spoke no French, and they had to have all their scenes together. And, you know, I think with each person it was different, you know. Uh, but I love finding that sort of individual language and then a common language for all the actors to speak, because in my mind that's sort of building a company. And then how that filters down to every single actor in the show and in the film, you know, right up to the... Uh, day players who just kind of come in and we used a lot of local casting in this because Marseille they were excellent what's that yeah and they were just great faces and great people and so game and so wetty and um you know every one of them uh because you know in Marseille the dialect's different so it wouldn't matter as much to this audience but if you're from Paris and if there's French people in here you know we needed that sound I needed them to sound like they were from that region so um the detective at the end yeah everybody uh, there was just so many great roles uh, that was just really enjoyable to cast. But I, I think with each actor, it was like, uh, you know, we're talking about this a bit at dinner, but like with Matt, it was just really, I felt like, you know, look, we went to Oklahoma together, Matt and I, we drove around, I sat with Roughnecks, we just kept talking, talking, talking. But really, it was just ultimately giving him permission to just not be Matt Damon. I think that was the biggest thing. Just like, just every day letting him know, you can totally get lost in this. No one here knows you. You're going to look different. You're going to walk different. You're going to move different. You're gonna, your rhythm's going to be different. And, and your integrity will be different. <laughs> like what, what you are is going to be different. So it was really me just giving him the sort of, I think, not that he needs it, but that little extra boost to kind of dive in. Um, and, and I'll come to Matt in a moment. But in terms of, having made all of your films here and then you go and you make a film in France, how difficult was it to communicate with the crew? Did you have a translator? Do you speak any French? Apart from your... Uh, not that hard, man. Those guys are just, they're ballers there. They know how to make movies. They've been doing it for a long time. They make a lot. You know, their film community, they, they really embrace their own movies. Their movie industry is incredibly vibrant. And they just found a way. And I spoke just enough French to get by. And, you know, uh, it was really exciting. What happened really was, you know, it was interesting. We were ready to make this movie. And Steve Golan, who was my wonderful producer who passed away before we made it, sort of did a back and napkin on what it would cost. And it, he just underestimated it because the cost of going to Marseille was huge. And so we had to shrink. In a way, our cost was going up, but my crews were shrinking. And I remember Phil Messina, my wonderful production designer, called me. He's like, so is this like an independent movie now? And, and I was like, no, it's not an independent movie because we're still spending way too much money. And I would never get you and Masa and Walt and all these other wonderful people and Karin if it was an independent movie. I just couldn't afford you. So we're a European movie now. So now <laughs> it's a lot of talented people working with less and being more hands-on. So that means, Phil, you're going to be on set with me. You're not going to be three days ahead of me. And it made a difference. And, you know, Masa always operates anyway. So just like suddenly my team was sort of more together all the time in terms of my keys. And you could feel it in how we were operating and, and like deeply supported by our majority French crew. What I loved about the film is you have this very direct and, and kind of unselfconscious aesthetic, um, which, as I mentioned to you at dinner, the last time I was on this stage before the pandemic, I interviewed uh, Clint Eastwood for the film that he had that uh, was just coming out uh, on Richard Jewell. And it reminds me of his aesthetic. I mean, if you look closely, you think, oh, this is a film that Clint could have directed, mm. that it's, it isn't showy, but it's so powerful and so clear in, in, in what it wants to say. Um, did you and Masa, did, were there films that you looked at? This is the third film, and, and as Tom mentioned, he and I share a cinematographer. Was this the third 
third time you've worked with him? Not specifically. We do talk a lot on movies. There's none that like we kind of, you know, earmarked as like that's our aesthetic. I think we're just building on what we've done, quite frankly. And I think we both feel like, you know, we believe in stepping back and really letting the world and the actors play, right? And sort of giving them that space to do it. And, you know, in this case, we were very static in, in Oklahoma. We were using a slightly Did different... Did you shoot that anamorphically and yeah. then you changed? When yeah, you changed and it, we were anamorphic in Oklahoma, uh, kind of wide frame with short depth of field, just kind so we could just him. be really isolate Matt, you know, really feel his isolation and his groundedness. And then, then when we got to Marseille, we we went spherical, went very handheld, went, went um, you know, just moved the camera more. We wanted to feel the energy, and it was a little dirtier. The frame was yeah. just dirtier. Uh, which is Marseille uh, in a great way. So, um, you know, I, I think that's, those are the kind of choices when trying to grab this, but there's still a classical storytelling approach to what I do, even though this structure is very unclassical, right? The structure of the movie and is very unclassical in its approach. So it's kind of combining those, those elements, and I think that is a, a bit of a nod to European filmmaking too, right? Like what they do. So, um, you know, I think for all of us, it was really just trying to find a tone. And I think tone is everything. We knew we were going to be moving through genre and different story points and different moments that were going to sort of be unexpected for an audience. But the tone had to remain really, and I think, you know, that's always the director's you know, greatest task, right? Hold the tone. If you hold the tone and the performances are solid, the audience will have a, a path. The, the locations that you and, and your production designer are really spectacular and really ground the film in, in a, in a, in a non-touristic Marseille, which I really appreciated. What were you, what were you looking for when you uh, were scouting locations? Just that, right? Not the postcard. We didn't want the postcard of the city or of France. And we, we knew we were an American team primarily setting up there and we needed it to feel authentic. This wasn't a backdrop, right? It wasn't the Bourne movies where they drop in and shoot all these great European cities to great effect. Yeah, I, I really love those that. movies. This, we needed to feel inside it. We needed to live with it. And it's incredibly subtle, but it's incredibly specific, right? So we needed to kind of like, we, we didn't shoot on a stage in, in all of Marseille. Every location was live, and it was just like, we, we were lucky. As you said, we were fortunate to be able to do this, to go find that and live in it. And it certainly provides the actors, which is so crucial, to just this reality that they can live in. And then finally, you know, Matt's character, by the time he gets to Marseille, he was so formed. It was just fun watching him move through this city. It was With like a, a subway video. sandwich bag, even. What's that? Subway sandwich yeah, bag. Yeah, but that was the thing. We're like, all right, where was the subway? Okay, there's one three blocks down there. He would go there every yes. single night because he has no, no intent on sort of investing in the culture in any way until he sort of finds himself there with versioning. I think it's one of the most immersive performances I've seen from Matt uh, in some time, which is a testament to your direction and script and, and both of you really doing the research to, for him to be believable as uh, someone who's a roughneck. Cause I, I mean, I bought every, every moment of it. And Matt is a notoriously uh, selective actor. What was the process of getting him attached? Had you sent him scripts in the past? I have. He has said we, it's never worked out. <laughs> he didn't just know. Some of it was timing, as it always is, and everything. But this one was really quick. And he was sort of top of my list. I, I think we felt like... We needed an actor of that stature, not just to get the movie made, but I needed someone to, as audiences, both in America and globally, to be like, oh, he's a hero. 
He has integrity. He's going to do the right thing. Because we knew we're at a moment in time where we had to start subverting expectations, not just cinematically, but in terms of humanity. You know, we had to like, we're at a a different, everything was sort of upside down. So, and I want an audience to come in and be like, oh, I trust this guy until they start questioning who they're trusting and why. And that, that, that was sort of instrumental. So there's only a couple of actors in the world that have that sort of uh, weight and authority in a sense. So Matt was the guy we went to first and he read it and got right back to me. It was literally like over a weekend and we were kind of making the movie. Wow. Yeah, it was fast. I remember because Steve Golan, who passed away, I talked to Steve on Friday and Matt said yes. And Steve said, great, let's get going. Monday we're making the movie. And I said, great. And Steve passed away on Sunday. It was just horrible. Oh. And yeah, it was the worst, the worst. Such a good guy. I miss Yeah, him. amazing guy. And like, you know, what I loved about Steve Golan was he was the kind of, I met Steve in a hotel in New York and he said, what do you got? And I go, I haven't written it, but I like this story about this roughneck, goes to Oklahoma, da da I had an old draft that I don't want you to see. I'm going to start from scratch. And he said, okay, let's make it. And that was it. And I knew he was one of those guys that we were going to make it. And he said, what do you need? I said, you don't have to pay me. Just pay these French writers and we're good to go. And he's like, okay. And, uh, you know, he had great taste, but he also knew how to get movies made and, and didn't necessarily, wasn't thinking ahead of how to market. He just wanted to tell original stories. Well, I couldn't see uh, anybody else in the part, which is always a testament to someone's performance and certainly your direction. And And I generally have have uh, ever since my first film kind of stupidly written with certain actors in mind. And um, sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't, but it seemed like, um, um, you know, Matt saying yes really was the impetus for you to really push the film forward. And I just couldn't imagine anybody else in the part. Yeah. I mean, look, that happens. But look, sometimes you write movies for other people and they say no, I've done it. And then you're like, oh, but you realize you've written something so specific, it starts to apply, right? And starts to play. With Matt, what made it so great was not only did he say yeah, but like two weeks later, we were in Oklahoma together. And like, it's amazing for a guy that's done that many movies, how passionate he is about every bit of the work, like the details, like he really wanted to dig in, you know, and like, that's inspiring, and you feel that all the way down. Like, it's very generous and collaborative and creative spirit that sort of starts to inspire everyone, you know? No question. And, and you look at the actors that he's shared the screen with, that, that he, they all, everybody has such a different approach. Yep. I mean, in my world, you know, Jeff Bridges has a very different approach than Robert Duvall to yep, Christian yep. Bale. Yep. And you have to understand how to direct them. Yeah, it was funny. He had just worked with Bale on Ford vs. Ferrari. And I don't think I'm blowing Matt out here, but he was just kept talking about how great Bale is and how deep Bale goes. And I was like, you know you can do that, right? Like, you do it too. You're pretty good. And like, you, if you need to go that deep, then just do it. Stop thinking about it and let yourself go there. And and we literally, you could just see his sort of, you know, it's like great athletes. They're all great athletes at that level. And sometimes they just need like a tiny tweak of the... Of, of, of what's happening psychologically for them to allow themselves to go to that next step. And I, I think he did with this. Before I move on to another topic, I have to uh, just talk about how splendid and electric uh, Camille Cotin is. Um, I think she's remarkable in the film. How did you find her? 
Uh, literally just dropped into Paris. I had a list of French actresses that I adored, and I hadn't heard of her. I hadn't seen Call My Agent. Now everybody has. And I just re I had a friend there. I'd seen what? Call My Agent, which is the show. You've not seen it? No. Oh, good. You're going to love her. Uh, have you guys seen that at all? Yeah, yeah. Oh, a lot of Kemi Katan <laughs> fans here. And she's just amazing in it. But it hadn't hit yet because this was four or five years ago. So I sat with her and she just sort of captured something that was right. And then she came in to read. I was like, I have to have you read because I need to sort of see where you can go. And it was one of those auditions where sometimes actors come in and they just nail the audition. You're like, boom, that's easy. Sometimes they come in and they make you rethink the part, as you know. Kemi came in and just held us like complete the part. She, with her energy and her range, suddenly this character we were close to but still reaching for just made sense. It felt grounded and authentic and had, she had integrity, she had compassion, she had humor, she had kind of a bit of a zaniness to her. She can really play comedy in a great way and it's yeah, really she's a wonderful performance. Yeah, she's amazing. So, she's amazing. So good. Um, generally, in terms of like successes and failures, which as film directors we all have, um, having directed a, a, a recent picture to to uh, best picture, mm -hmm. um, how do you grow from your successes and failures, and how does winning best picture inform either the film you make next or the expectations that you place upon yourself or that you feel like you have to live up to? Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I think I'm still figuring that out. Um, you know, I, all I felt like after that experience was I wanted to go back to work because you spend so much time, you know, hawking your movie, oh, yeah. you know, and talking about it and to a point of just never wanting to talk about it again, I think there's something in that, right? So uh, I was really just ready to go back to work. And uh, I feel like what that movie allowed me is to take some shots. And I feel like without question, this movie is my most ambitious movie to date, just into what I was being challenged technically in terms of, you know, story, uh, everything filmically. It just was for me, I could tell I was reaching on all levels. And so uh, if I can live there on that edge, I'm good. I can't always tell how it's going to work, what it's going to do to audiences, if they're going to go with the story or not. But like, you know, as long as you get those shots, and I think my job at this point in this crazy film atmosphere is to kind of like take chances and, and push for original stories uh, that are still human and the kind of movies I got turned on when I started by. So turned on by when I started rather. So, you know, that I just feel empowered to do that. And maybe just maybe people believe in me a little more because of that. You know, maybe they give me a little bit more leash. Um, but look, a lot of these people that I made this movie with at Focus and Participant, I've made three movies with these guys and they're just committed to these kind of stories and they, they still believe there's a market for these kind of original stories uh, and, a, and an audience for them more importantly. So uh, that's a big part of what I'm trying to do, I think, right now creatively. Well, you do it beautifully. Congratulations, because I think the film is really, really outstanding. And thank you all for sitting through Thank this. you, man. Thank you guys for staying so late and coming out on Sunday night. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.